Welcome back to the How Might We podcast. I'm John Barnes. In this episode, I'm going to speak to Carl Miller about his book, The Death of Gods, The New Global Power Grab, uh, which is awesome. Uh, but first, though, I just want to announce something which I've been working on for a while, really, which is my new online course for organizational activists. So I spent most of the first part of this year taking a client through this. It's a 16-week online course. Uh, it had great feedback. It's got 4.5-star 4. 4. rating, which is really cool. Uh, and the course helps people to change organizations. It goes through eight learning packs, which are entitled The Changing World, Distributed Organizations, Self-Organized Teams, Remote Teams, Facilitation, leadership and group dynamics, feedback and communication, and how to create change. The course is audio first, which I think is going down really well, because each pack is compri comprised of 10 short episodes. It means people really can listen at their own pace in bite-sized chunks. Uh, and the course also has canvases and workshops that participants can elect to do if they like. Yeah, and there's a monthly webinar which have been going down really well uh, because we have really tailored conversations uh, around the different things that, that these um, people and teams are facing, really. Um, so this has been really excited. You know, I created this course to try and see if I could help larger groups to change organisations. Um, so far, so far that's going really well. So I'm entering a new beta testing phase now, after which I'll probably increase the price a bit. Uh, and I'm looking for two to three testing organizations to do that. So if you want to help people change your organization, please get in touch. And you can find out more info and message me through the contact form on my website. So go to johnbarnes.me forward slash online course uh, or just click the, the online course button in the navigation. And uh, on that page, you'll find... You'll also find that I'm offering my mini book, Tales of Cool Companies, for free, along with a six, six series um, of, of inspiration emails. So just leave your email there and, uh, um, and we can get to that. Uh, so I'm look, looking forward to hearing you. This has been a, a piece of work I've been doing for quite some time, uh, and I really see it becoming a, a bigger part of what I'm doing. I've got a few individuals asking the t to take the course, so that's maybe something maybe for the end of the year or early next year as well. So get in touch if that interests you. Uh, and that's it really. My online course for organisational activists. So that's johnbarnes.me forward slash online course. Okay, but today I'm speaking to Carl Miller. So Carl is a researcher, he's an author, a speaker into all things concerning the internet and digital technology really. He has a great TEDx talk on digital democracy that I recommend. And he's the research director at CASM, which is the Centre for the Analysis of Social Media at a think tank called Demos. Um, he also presents shows on BBC Click. Uh, and today we discuss his book, The Death of Gods, The New Global Power Grab, uh, which I also highly recommend because he mixes research with really great storytelling. So throughout the book, you really follow him on his journey to meeting all sorts of really interesting characters from British intelligence agencies to criminals on the dark web, um, fake news entrepreneurs in the Balkans, hackers at DEFCON, to digital democracy activists. So it's, it's, really, uh, it's really fun and, and 
and broad stuff and he, he interrogates this idea of power in the digital age really well I think uh, and, and it certainly helped me helped me think through some, some stuff some really interesting stuff I think so Carl and I have a lot in common which we do discuss um, as well as some stuff I've given almost no thought to like cyber warfare and cyber crime that he's He's um, published some research on recently called Warring Stories. You can find that on the, on the Demos website. Um, so I really enjoyed uh, my conversation and speaking to Carl. He seems like a lovely guy. Uh, and I think you'll enjoy this, uh, this conversation a lot too. So with no further ado, I want to give you my conversation with Carl Miller, which I've entitled, How Might We Understand Digital Power? Take care, enjoy. All right, Carl, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thanks very much for having me, John. Cheers. I've just, so I've just finished reading your book. I actually finished it uh, yesterday in an airport. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, good airport reading. The Death of the Gods, the New Global Power Grab. Um, so I'm really happy to be, to be having this conversation with you. There's loads of, um, it's fun for me because there's loads of really overlapping areas. And then there's some areas that I just, I'd just never given thought and you'd... Um, you, you, you've got some pretty mad stories to tell about those particular ones uh, around your, your time with police forces and national surveillance agencies so, uh, and studying the dark web. So I'm looking forward to hearing a, a bit about both of our, our common ground and, and the stuff that, that's brand new to me. Well, I'll try to stay optimistic and uh, not be too scary. Right. Well, yeah, so I think, and I, I think that's actually quite an interesting... Uh, yeah, it, it, I went between both, so so it'll be interesting. I have a tendency at the moment to take us towards the negative, although I'm 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 typically a more optimistic person. So so let's see. Um, I want to cover. Uh, we'll cover loads of small, uh, sort of insightful and fun parts of the books. I th- I've, I think you did a great job of being uh, just as insightful as as you were uh, a great storyteller throughout. Uh, just for podcast listeners. Um, you will not get the entirety of uh, Carl's book in this podcast or in any TED talk that you see him give. Um, uh, I feel a need to caveat that because I think a lot of us think that uh, a one to two hour conversation is, the, is, is just as good as a book and it's not. <laughs> no, it's just quite, it really is genuinely just scraping the surface. Yeah, yeah. And it's, um, it's, uh, it's, it's just slightly annoying that, that we're... we're a lot of us like that today, spending a lot of time uh, watching quick videos on on double speed rather than, than reading through a book. Well, that that's actually quite an important irony, and and I, I was I was actually kind of it occurred to me a lot when I was writing because obviously my my interest, and I'm sure what we're going to talk about is you know technology and the pace of it and and its kind of profound impacts across so many different areas of our lives, and kind of it it did strike me that I was recording these things on a dead tree. Right, right. You know, um, and and that it would be months before anyone could actually could 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 actually read it. And you know what? I think that's actually really useful. And for for anyone that's like trying to understand tech, reading books rather than kind of digital publishing, I actually think is really important. Because um, what it, what I didn't really realise until I had to write a book myself was that what it kind of forces you to do is to try and kind of get under the kind of um, froth and bluster of the day to day, and try and identify the kind of trends and things that you want to talk about, which are going to be equally relevant, if not more so, six months or even a year or even more, like kind of down the line. 
Um, you know, and a, a kind of a, a piece of advice that another tech author gave me right when I set out to write it was don't write the history of the last five minutes because that's going to be the <laughs> to be the content that ages the most. And I think it's really, really, that was really valuable. It stayed in my mind for the, over the next year when I was writing it. Um, and, and kind of produces, I think, kind of like work, not just my book, but I think in general people that write in this area, um, very, very different from the kind of stuff that you will kind of get in a, you know, in, 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 in any kind of TED talk or any kind of, uh, uh, you know, kind of um, like 800 word kind of hot take. Yeah, and I think it is, I'd love to actually um, talk to more and more authors about how the internet has changed the way they write, as well as the publishing model. Yeah, uh, of course, because I see a lot of authors now they're publishing like a book a year or every two years. And I'm thinking like, whoa, you know, that's this has got this has got intense. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wouldn't have been like that before. Um, but before we before we jump into the book, I've got plenty of, um, of of bits to touch on. Before that, I thought maybe you can just tell us a little bit about um, what you're doing at the moment, about your your day job, about um, Demos, uh, where where you, I think you spend a lot of your time, your role there. So just give us a little bit of flavour as to what what day to day Carl Miller's work looks like. Oh well, um, okay, cool. Um, so for the last seven years, I've been. Um, the research director of something called CASM, or the Centre for the Analysis of Social Media at Demos. Um, we, kind of, we, we set it up with two main aims in mind. One was that we saw that the internet and social media was totally changing the way that research could happen. You know, suddenly all this amazingly valuable activity was occurring online. And second, we, we thought that social media, I mean, it's an obvious point now, perhaps slightly less so seven or eight years ago, was that social media was going to be a kind of really important agent of social change. It was changing everything, the kind of identities and politics that we hold, the relationships that we cherish, the reasons we get up in the morning, all of that was shifting. Um, So kind of Chasm was set up to do both really. It was set up to both build new ways of researching social media and also use them to try and research the things which were really important. And over the last kind of seven years, um i kind of chasm's grown and and but our workers like broadly followed like the the different kind of problems and 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 um kind of looming opportunities which the internet has given us all so you know we looked at everything from the way that terrorists exploit social media platforms to the way in which it might open up politics um you know the way it's changing things like trust um and journalism and of course cybercrime um uh I, I, I kind of like, I guess like the reason I stepped back a bit from Demos and wrote the book was that I kind of saw, saw myself and, and all of Chasm like furiously scampering from problem to problem and question to question really quickly um, over years. And I kind of wanted a kind of bigger picture. I really wanted to know, okay, if we begin to try and glue together all these different areas, what does it actually say about what's happening? Um, so, uh, that's kind of been that kind of stepping back a bit and kind of mixing together more journalistic, more story driven kind of writing with the kind of more formal, like data driven, research driven, um, kind of methodologically robust form of research, which we've developed at Chasm. They're, they're the two things I spend my, my kind of day, day job doing. Um, and at the moment, those two things have come together principally in trying to understand this big shift of militaries and autocratic states and liberal democracies, frankly, as well, to kind of fighting warfare online and with information. Um, 
that's that kind of I'm sure we're going to get onto that, John. But but that that that's that's a shift which I think um, is probably the most important of anything that I currently see happening on the internet, and where we're both trying to glue together kind of more journalistic work with with um, with research to try and understand. Right. Okay. That's interesting. So you're 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 kind of you you started chasm. You zoomed out uh, to to the work you've done recently, and now you you feel that you're zooming into one specific area a bit more at the moment. Yeah, exactly. But 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 trying to mix together both journalism and and research. So I guess as I zoomed out, I became more of a journalist and less of a researcher, or at least try to mix those two things together. Um, so I've kind of been writing a lot more, kind of I suppose like almost long form kind of tech pieces for a series of publications. I I now kind of guest present programs on BBC Click, uh, things like that. Um, you know. I think the one thing that, that that we do often miss when we simply do research, and especially in the age of social media where we're bombarded with so many things so quickly, is the kind of human stories which really make ideas and concepts come alive. Um, that was a big emphasis of the book. I really wanted to understand how to write about people, which is something that researchers actually, even though they study people, don't really, really do. They don't really write about people's lives or or how they feel often and I, I and you know that is often the best way of actually trying to transmit um uh concepts or ideas which are quite can feel quite amorphous and difficult to understand if they're just kind of expressed or communicated in general terms right and I, i'm guessing actually you, you covered one story that i'm thinking of now but just this idea that uh the internet's allowed us to research for anybody in theory to research anything in theory um, and but in doing so, you can never go to that place and never speak to to those who have you know a, a really different perspective. Um, you might be able to read some of the things or, or watch some of the things that they say online, but still, then you're doing it through um, you're doing it lacking context. And um, so, I guess a, ret- a return or at least a rebalancing with with like traditional journalism it feels really important there. Yeah, and and. You know, as is that common adage, like really technology often really does boil down to people, um, how people use it, the kind of people that build it, why. Um, and I was determined when I wrote the book to kind of get outside of the office and not just simply meet people through a screen. Um, mm. I, I think that especially when you try and track down an idea like power, it's really not something which you can just Google together. It's not something you can just rely on secondary sources to understand. Power can be strange, weird, mysterious, hidden, misused. Um, and in order to identify all of those different things, you have to go and directly and physically meet the people that you think can best can best demonstrate it. Um, so again, irony, if irony number one is, is um, writing about digital technology on paper, irony number two is that I think probably writing about technology and power requires much more shoe leather, you know, much more kind of physical face-to-face meetings than almost any other topic I can think of. Right. Yeah, and I think you did a you do a really wonderful job of of combining like a researcher Kyle with with journalist Kyle in this book because those those stories are are vibrant and you know we we I think have like stereotypes in our mind to hackers in bedrooms or um or like police police SWAT teams or or whatever but you you tell those stories really well i think it adds, it, it really makes me uh makes me able to understand 
that this is real. This isn't this isn't stuff I'm I'm reading in in the papers or or on the screen, you know. And and it does it does feel very very different when you're face to face with it. So you know we can we can talk in general terms about kind of cybercrime statistics, um, and how there's been this huge shift and and how all these different kinds of crime are, are kind of flowering. Um, but then when you actually go and on a raid with the police, you know, and you actually see a cyber criminal's home, you you realise it's not exotic. Um, it's it, it's not even that exciting in a weird way. It's it's incredibly kind of banal. You know, it's just a normal house with a normal person in it that has been drawn to or, or, or decided really to to commit crimes on the internet for reasons which um, you can then begin to try and pick apart and understand. And likewise, when you speak to the victims of it, you realise despite the fact that this is a crime which is dependent on the internet in order to exist, um, the consequences are just as real as anything else. I mean, the hurt, anguish, misery, um, uh, embarrassment, humiliation of, of, of digital crimes are, are, are incredibly human. So yeah, I mean, it, it, it kind of, I guess like meeting people face to face, I think both can throw up things which are genuinely counterintuitive um, and unusual or surprising or just simply not being covered by, 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 uh, by, the, by press or, or researchers. Um, but then also, yeah, as you said, kind of can make it actually corporeal and physical and real in ways, again, writing in general terms about tech, I think, um, struggles to do alone. And actually, before we go into the content, um, it's fun talking about the the way you you wrote this and the way you're researching at the moment. What did it change you in any way? This this journey of like you know, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but going going from screen researching to like in person researching or combining the two, uh, what what effect did it have on you? That um, I think it um, in general. Maybe this, I think this was a, a, an effect I deliberately tried to kind of incubate in myself. Um, I, 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 I think it made me kind of more empathetic to people who are typically the kind of bad actors, kind of bad guys of research. So fake news merchants, for instance. Um, mm. You know, we write and research all the time about how we can limit the impacts of junk news and fake news, how we can, we castigate the social media platforms for, for allowing these actors to exist. Um, but if you go to Kosovo, as I did, and you meet fake news merchants face to face and you kind of get to know them in a strange way, you realize these are young Kosovo news with, you know, far too few opportunities, mm. you know, available to them. Um, they're people who were, for instance, one, one man, Burim, who, who, I, who I got to know, he was earning um, seven euros a day as a waiter before he started doing this. Mm. And, you know, there, there, are, there just aren't, there are very few monsters out there in the world, um, far fewer than I expected to find. Um, definitely there are, there are people who are scary, there are people that are very powerful, um, and both scary and powerful in ways which I don't think we often recognise, and that, that's concerning. But, but you know, human beings are far too complex for these kind of black and white comparisons, which I think we often construct them into, good actors, bad actors, fake news, real news. Um, and so I, I think I felt myself changing in, in that I, I, I kind of set out to really find people that were members of one of two camps, people that were kind of liberating us and people that were oppressing us using these strange new forms of power to do so. Um, and actually, of course, what you find is that there are far more gray hats than either white hats or black hats. There are far more right. kind of sit somewhere ambiguously in the middle. 
Right, and actually, you just made me uh, you just made me think that how I think the internet has uh, maybe like given a rebirth to the idea of of the world being complex, that it operates in networks, that uh, that we should think in system systems, not linearly, et cetera, et cetera. And what I just what I just thought of there is maybe what it's what it's done is that we apply systems thinking to the internet, but we don't. Uh, we don't think of the internet as one part of a greater system. So in this case, when you talk about um, uh, Burham in Kosovo, it makes me think how, well, I remember as a kid watching, watching like Tony Blair on TV as we entered Kosovo. Uh, and now Kosovo has like, you know, fake, fake news merchants that impact our elections. Um, but, but perhaps that is, you know, they say in, in complex systems, the, the consequence of an action happens uh, far away and, and often in a long time, so distant geographically and, and time-wise. Perhaps this is, this is proof of that, you know? But we're, yeah, I don't know, that's interesting. Absolutely, yeah, I think that's, I think that's, um, I think that's probably right. Um, the internet is causing us or forcing us to think in more complex ways, but, or, or, or to confront phenomena in a in a way which recognizes their complexity but then it's also giving oxygen i think in general to ideas which are incredibly simple right this is this is a, this is one of the kind of dualisms i think of the internet um so vi you know i mean i what i most thought of john when you were talking about that was um a trip to a viral advertising studio that i made mm, mm. um i wanted to understand actually that there were people behind many of the virals that we see that use a great deal of expertise and, and skill to kind of craft these ideas, which kind of almost cause us to share them all. And the kind of number one adage of that, the most important thing of all, is that ideas that have a kind of viral potential have to be just a, as simple as possible. Like there is anything that's nuance or complexity or um, kind of uh, 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 kind of anything which kind of... Um, contradicts or takes away from the kind of core key idea is is described as ballast it's what, say that word again weigh the idea down ballast ballast yeah like on a ship right okay yeah, yeah, yeah. You want the idea to to fly off into the stratosphere to be shared more and more uh, but anything which isn't the kind of the kind of raw emotive content and it's always emotive content which is at the heart of these virals they try to uh, they try to construct um, is is simply seen as something which is standing in the way of it soaring up yeah I mean you see that I think there was an IPA study in in the ad industry years ago that uh, they they split test rational content emotional content and content that had both and emotional content, people paid more. It was that simple. They spent more money or would buy the same thing but spend more on it uh, if it had emotion in it. And in, in the world of memes, sim simple, simple emotional memes spread, spread further uh, and you, you end up with like meme-based politics, more or less. Um, so I'm, look, I'm, looking through, um, I'm looking through some of my notes and I'm keen to get into to some of the, the territories. Uh, we started covering a few, um, but per perhaps a, the, the best place to start is, um, is with, with the overall uh, hypothesis or, or rather like a intention you'd gone in with where you mentioned this difference between uh, you, you, you kind of thought that you'd see those who liberate us and those who oppress us. 
Um, but, but actually you've, um, and, and, and I, I think I feel guilty of, of putting people into those two camps a lot. Um, so per, perhaps you can say a little bit more about how you arrived at, at the, the idea that there's more gray hats than white or black hats. And then we can, we can go into some of the areas where, where we really see both. Sure. Well, the, the kind of key hypothesis or idea of the book, of course, is, is this idea of power. Um, kind of power was an idea that I arrived at um, because I became kind of increasingly afraid that despite all the information now at our fingertips, despite everything that we're kind of assailed by day by day, we actually know less rather than more about what shapes our lives, um, kind of who shapes our lives, um, the interests behind that shaping and, and how it is done. Um, so I kind of turn to power as an idea that actually lots of other writers have, have turned to at moments of kind of tumultuous social change, you know, it, all the way from the Renaissance into, into um, um, uh, the Industrial Revolution through to the kind of social liberalisation to the 1960s. A whole succession of writers have kind of turned to power as a way of trying to diagnose and describe um, what actually is happening to their societies. Um, and so I thought that in order to try and understand how our lives are shaped today, an investigation into power, both who has it and what it looks like, was what I needed to do. Um, it's a very slippery idea, of course, and like the kind of first problem that, that, that any writer on power confronts is that there are as many definitions of it more than there are actually authors that use it. Uh, it's, an, it's an idea which has constantly been defined and redefined over centuries. Um, but my kind of working definition really was that power was the kind of capacity for, for any of us to reach into anyone else's lives and change what that life is like, to change the choices that people have, the choices that they make, um, and that it could come in lots of different forms. Um, power could be kind of hard, coercive forms of power, kind of um, where, where, where one is kind of essentially forced to change. Um, it could be economic, different kinds of incentives um, or penalties. Um, or, or it could be kind of attitudinal, you know, it could be persuasive, it could be soft, much softer. So it could go, could be anywhere on that spectrum, I thought. Um, but the, 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 essentially the idea was to, to go and look at lots of different parts of, of our lives, not just politics, where I think power is, is most regularly and often used, but, but also to try and look at how power is changing in areas of our lives that I think are much less discussed. So warfare was one, crime was another, media was another, and so on. Um, and meet the people who would be the best kind of guides to the reader as to how power is really changing, um, whose kind of lives and stories kind of, in a way, represented much bigger shifts that were cur currently happening. Um, these were people that... Um, might have become newly powerful, um, that might have found ways of shaping everyone's lives in, in, uh, that we didn't really recognise or they knew. Um, or it might, they might be newly powerless, people that were members of large institutions, traditional, weighty, um, uh, uh, kind, of kind of previously um, consequential kind of bodies that, that were talking about how they felt much less powerful than, 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 than they should. Um, and so that's the story of the book, really. It's a, it's a, it's a journey that kind of meanders and weaves around the world in, uh, over about a year, um, 
where everywhere from you know Las Vegas to um, to South Korea to Berlin to London, I kind of go on this on this tour, um, trying to use those individual stories to make broader points about um, about how power is changing today and why that, of course, matters to all of us. Yeah, it, sounds, it seems like a fun tour. You, you certainly met some uh, some characters along the way. Um, let's let's dive into a few of the areas where where your 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 interest in power sort of uh, leads you to some of these insights. I think may, maybe a good place to start is um, where you said your interest was going at the moment. So you're talking about cyber warfare, um, I believe. Most can you can you just go into that that current interest of yours, and then then we can explore some of the topics around it a little bit. Sure. Well, it's actually not quite cyber warfare. So I think this is an important distinction to start with. Um, I was looking at warfare and how warfare was changing um, and how power, therefore, might be shifting around in, in, in war. And, you know, this is back in 2016 now. Um, there was all this kind of emphasis on kind of on, on cyber war, the kind of almost the kind of kinetic use of the Internet um, to... Um, to kind of make things happen, to make things go bang. Um, but that wasn't the only thing I thought was happening. There was, there was something else happening too. Um, a kind of succession of militaries, both autocratic and liberal democratic, had all, I saw, kind of gone through the same kind of thinking. Um, they'd all kind of realised we now live in the information age. They'd all asked how war was therefore changing and how militaries should change as a result. And they'd all kind of reached the same conclusion. Um, they'd, information had been used as a, as a tool of war for a very long time. But, but somewhere along the way, they kind of made this kind of conceptual shift or pivot away from seeing information as a tool of war to seeing information as a theatre of war. So rather than being used in war, it was a, like almost a space wherein warfare itself actually happened. Um, and they'd all therefore began to construct capabilities and, and, uh, and, uh, and teams in order to fight warfare in information. Um, I went on to the 77th Brigade um, headquarters. That's the, that's the British Army's kind of information manoeuvre um, capability, um, which is based down in Berkshire. And there, of course, I saw kind of a warfare which was totally unfamiliar to me. These were soldiers who were looking at social media, they were looking at data, they were looking at audience um, backgrounds and reactions to things. Um, and, and, and there was this palpable sense that they in fact were very late to the game. They were desperately trying to catch up and there were lots of other people that had done this um, first and more decisively. Um, and that kind of began this kind of, the, 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 essentially the, the chapter on warfare, which, which looks at this pivot um, and tries to trace how um, especially autocratic militaries began to adopt and use kind of information warfare techniques and, and tools. Um, how they kind of, it's, it forms a kind of chronology which begins with the kind of online, simmering online subcultures in the early noughties, doing this for the lulls, rigging online polls, setting up sock puppet accounts how that's then adopted by a series of kind of for-profit actors who create what I call a kind of disinformation on demand marketplace where many of these things were simply monetized. 
and then used by kind of extremist political organizations, organizations that could never have used mainstream media as a way of getting their message out of uh, recruiting and mobilizing people. And then finally into militaries, which perhaps were the, were the slowest as, as, uh, as uh, large organizations often are to, to recognize these new opportunities, nonetheless began to pivot in ways which were so decisive and, and important that I thought this was completely changing the game now. Um, that, that as soon as you see the internet, social media platforms, information itself as being a theatre, of course we're now going to have a kind of great power competition to to or race to try and dominate it. And the um, I think here this is where the the goodies and baddies story, like well, partly falls apart a bit, um, but but also just becomes interesting. I'm curious as to the differences that you saw between you know, those who are uh, trying to, uh, you know, liberate and, and oppress us here. Like we, we're, we're, we're aware of some of the stories about how Russia does this, but we're not always aware of some of the stories as to how the UK does this. I'm, I'm curious as to the, the you, you mentioned the difference in chronology. I'm, dif- I'm, I'm interested in a difference in method or intention here. Yeah, um, I actually put that question to um, one of the interviewees in the book, Sir David Omond, who's the former director of GCHQ. Um, and I, I, it's probably better his answer rather than mine. Um, so, so, so to paraphrase David, um, the techniques are likely to be fairly similar to each other. Um, the big difference between autocratic militaries and liberal democracies is the legal environment wherein these activities occur. So... Um, within a liberal democracy, essentially you have to demonstrate necessity, necessity and proportionality. Um, the information warfare campaigns are likely to be much narrower. The reasons why they're being undertaken are likely to be much better described. Um, and there will be steps taken to try and limit kind of collateral damage, for want of a better word. Um, whereas, of course, in, in autocratic militaries, uh, that isn't necessarily the case. Um, I've got a very mixed kind of series of feelings towards the kind of use of information warfare by liberal democracies. I mean, of course, I'm inherently supportive of liberal democracies over over autocracies. um, And I kind of see the need for militaries in them to pivot to, to try and deal with the ways in which the internet and social media platforms are being kind of gamed and exploited at an industrial scale by countries with very few legal limits. Um, but we also are just, we're also at the very beginning of this form of warfare, which means that um, we haven't really built out, I think, a kind of clear conception of basically what does a just war in information actually look like? What are the rules of engagement? Um, how can the British military or other militaries communicate clearly to the public when this is happening um, and what steps are being taken? I mean, it's still very shadowy and mysterious, I think. Um, in part, I think that's down to the, probably the sensitivity that lots of liberal democratic militaries feel in, in acting in this area. I mean, they're in a very difficult position. They both have to respond to what they see autocratic militaries doing, but also know that them beginning to intervene in this way themselves um, is going to cause all kinds of public uproar and anxiety. Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, there, there needs to be a kind of there needs to be a surge of philosophers, in my opinion, as, as yeah. liberal, you know, democratic information warriors to kind of to very quickly kind of construct 
a kind of moral framework which is clearly communicated to people which is you know subject to independent oversight and everything else which can kind of govern the way in which they work in this area and we don't have that at the moment so um, um, I, love, I love that comment you made about how we, we need a surge of philosophers because I, I can see that it's, it's so, well, it's so uh, complex and entangled in stuff. Like in, in on-the-ground warfare, you know, no chemical weapons is a rule of the game. So, so in online warfare, what, what's the equivalent to chemical weapons? Then you have, you know, increasingly, uh, and thank God it's, it's possible to see when wars happen in most places now, which perhaps wasn't the case, you know, 50 years ago, you could, you could probably have some uh, invisible wars in places. Um, but maybe now you can again, because now you can have online wars that no one sees. Uh, and so, so it, ju- it just becomes uh, a minefield, um, to, to, to pun intended, to, to figure out what's okay and not okay, particularly when you're jumping into so many acts of hypocrisy and irony, perhaps, perhaps rightfully so, I don't know, because you're in a liberal, you know, liberal democracy misinforming people is a pretty terrifying concept. Now, you know, like deep state theorists or <laughs> conspiracy theorists will tell us that perhaps that's always been the case, um, but not on digital steroids uh, and, and not to this degree. So it, it really is... Uh, difficult to, to fully understand and because so much of that world is invisible uh, to, to most of us who haven't been to, to GCHQ or to the 77th Brigade um, it's, it's a really tricky one to get and I don't think it's even you know the Snowden leaks were great but I, I feel we've, we just kind of forgot about that um, and spoke about him and, and haven't, haven't, it hasn't really bubbled to the surface like, like it should have maybe. Right. I mean, you know, there might be cases where um, it's perfectly morally um, permissible for a military or anyone else to lie. Um, You know, I mean, it might be, for instance, like there might be a lie which reduces panic, which saves lives. Maybe you lie to keep people in their homes so they're not covered in radioactive ash. Um, There might be all kinds of reasons where, you know, in this kind of... um, moral calculus which states have to do there there are there are times when um the selective use of truth or even untruths might be permissible but that can only be done when you have a clear framework which identifies the myriad harms which are done and the possible goods which might be as a result um and outside of that moral calculus it's unbelievably difficult, I think, for liberal democratic militaries to act in the information space. Now, um, so the, look, the, the main conclusion of the warfare chapter is essentially this. Um, the kind of gaming of social media platforms. I mean, this, so, so firstly, we have to understand this is a struggle between, um, this is not a struggle between states. This is a struggle between um, tech giants and governments, and, and, and especially autocratic governments. Um, it is technically trivial for militaries to do many of the kind of techniques of information warfare. You know, setting up millions of accounts, false amplification, the construction of um, the construction of um, uh, misleading content. You know, compared to building a tank or an aircraft carrier, this is technically very, very straightforward for any capable military to do. And cheap. It's cheap. The the um, the annual budget of um, 
of Russia today, RT, is about $200 million a year, which gets you like 1.4 F22 Raptors, you know, um, a, a, a famously expensive uh, uh, air supremacy fighter. Um, uh, it's really cheap. Um, the, the, the limiting factor is the law. It's not technical possibility. It's legal permissibility. Um, and, uh, you know, I actually did a master's in war studies 10 years ago. And uh, the kind of first thing you, you learn is that, is that warfare is, a, is an incredibly rules-bound activity. There's a big difference between murdering people and killing people in warfare. There's all kinds of definitions as to what legitimate war is. And there's a huge amount of thinking about when it can be pursued justly. Of course, that doesn't always happen. And of course, liberal democracies like autocratic militaries have in recent history pursued wars which were ruinous and illegal and, uh, and, and, and definitely not moral. But it is rules bound. Um, and whilst we remain in the situation where there is not clear moral frameworks which li liberal democratic militaries need to know when and how they can pursue warfare and information space and when they can't, I think they probably will do much less of it than than perhaps they should, um, and that means that this is a um, an environment where um, autocratic militaries are inherently better suited to act. Um, what, what and why is that? That's because there's a there's a lower threshold. There's there's, there's no legal there's no legal or reputational consequences for what they do. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, and so that they have no legal limitations. They they simply have um, technical limitations, which are very low. Um, the tech giants have built platforms which are frictionless, where it's incredibly easy to join. It's incredibly easy to do stuff, to share, to create content because they want their platforms to grow. And that means that there are very few kind of barriers or obstacles in place for any military to begin to subvert and undermine online platforms at a scale which I think most people would find astonishing. Um, yeah, I mean, I want to, I think, I think this brings up two, two questions for me. One is the, the speed of decision making is a huge factor. So, so having low legal boundaries helps uh, in these instances. I, I'd like to discuss that, but I just want to come, come back to close a thought that's nipping away in my mind around, it, it felt when you were, when you were discussing that there, there, there must be some instances where lying's okay. Um, I feel inside my body a like reticence to, to fully accept you saying that. Although I, uh, <laughs> or, or, although I do, I do, I do uh, intellectually, I, I, I probably can get there. But what, what it made me think is that there's got to be in the rules of the game here, particularly in liberal democracy, there's got to be some flowchart where where it's it's like the last resort, so to speak. Absolutely. And let's just dwell on this for a second. Let, let, let's, let's use a real example. Um, so um, about four or five years ago, um, uh, kind of so-called Islamic State was exploiting lots of mainstream media, social, social media platforms um, to recruit and propagandize. Um, one of the kind of big responses to that by um, intelligence agencies was to essentially... Um, um, infiltrate um, online kind of rad radical Islamist networks and um, by lying. They would claim to be kind of radical Islamist fellow travelers 
um, they were um, kind of um, they were Arabists. They were um, they were Quranic scholars, um, and they would kind of join these networks to do various things to try and stop people being groomed, to try and stop people um, being kind of logistically supported to traveling over to Syria and Iraq. Um, you know, at, but but fundamentally, they were doing this, you know, in a way which was um, um, disingenuous. They were claiming mm. to be people they weren't continuously, possibly over months or years. Um, in that case, I would say that's quite a clear that's quite a clear use case where I think lying is probably okay because I think that the kind of broader like benefits that might bring to people like young. Um, young kind of uh, European kind of boys and girls that were being groomed to go over to um, to be part of Islamic State. Um, I think the kind of like I think the possible benefit, like the benefits of of trying to undermine that, kind of probably in some cases outweighs the moral hazards of of, of state agencies lying. I, I guess I, I agree with uh, it being okay as a last resort. The, the, I've not given this enough thought, but what I'm what I'm wondering is, are there are there alternatives that haven't been pursued that don't require the lie? And I, and I just don't know. You know, it's like a, 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 I'm sure there's there's plenty of people who have put plenty of thought into it. But I just wonder if there is a beacon of truth of transparency that can that 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 really can like like i i find i find um the transparency movement in general that you see in some areas online incredibly disarming it becomes uh it it becomes almost um almost like taoist in its ability to to disarm and i and i wonder if there are there are innovations like social innovations where it would be possible to use transparency to disarm lying rather than use lying to disarm lying. Um, but, but again, I, I'm sure, I'm sure there's plenty of not so edge cases, like perhaps like the one you just described where we're actually like the lies, the only way. Yeah. I mean, and you know, I, I mentioned these two principles uh, at the outset, necessity and proportionality. Right. They are, they are really important ones. I don't think, yeah. I, part of my worry, of course, is that I, I, I don't see how they're currently being used to organize or, or um, kind of limit information warfare. But, but they're used across lots of the, this kind of work where state agencies have to do things which require moral hazard. Um, intercepting communications is, is, is probably the most obvious. Um, and the principle of necessity basically says, is there a is there a less hazardous, less intrusive alternative to what we're currently doing? Mm. So I think, the, I think the framework is good, but as you say, yeah. like maybe the, the options available right. and a kind of actually a detailed explanation of how that applies to all these different use cases, that's probably where we need that surge of philosophers to, to help us out. Right, and there's and there's uh, and then there's two areas. There's all the options that perhaps haven't been explored or that we don't know have been explored, and then there's the, you know, those two principles that you share there. Uh, it's it's helpful. I mean, transparency can come in simply by saying we are tra- here. We're transparent about our process, uh, and then there's a point in the process where you know if nothing is working, then we start being transparent. Uh, and we, we go underground, you know, like, uh, it, you, you can be transparent about the lack of transparency as well on some, on some meta level in these cases, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree with that.
So, uh, so, so you, you've helped me close off the first, the first area, more or less, <laughs> that, that, <laughs> that this brought up. The second one was this speed of decision making. <clears throat> um, so, so just flesh out a little bit for us this idea uh, that currently autocratic regimes uh, can work faster than, uh, than democratic ones. And then, then we can go into some of the alternatives. I think you and I are both both looked into a little bit okay well um let, let, let me let me kind of um respond to that with a kind of broader point because I, I think this is something which kind of is a thread that weaves itself through many of the chapters not just warfare um i think definitely in politics which i imagine we'll get on to speaking about next but but in media and and crime as well i think i think it was really present um in lots of different places where i saw power changing um which is that um when power, when power kind of flows through technology, and when technology is 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 obviously accelerating and changing faster than anything else, all that kind of squishy human stuff, you know, whether it's the laws of war or professional standards, um, or or the law itself, um, or um, or regulation or anything, public scrutiny, even public awareness, all these different things, which essentially we've used to try and cage power and control it. Um, they get um, they get completely undermined. They 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 we we simply have not found ways of of building these cages for power as 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 quickly as power itself is shifting. Mm. Um, and th- that probably is is one of my most deep seated concerns with what I currently see happening to power today which is that in area after area after area, whether it's citizen journalists breaking amazing stories and doing, I think, increasing the work of journalists, or whether it's, um, whether it's the, the way in which political campaigning has changed, or whether it's, I mean, I think probably most kind of sharpest of all, most worrying of all, is the way that um, crime has shifted. Um, power has kind of gone wild. It's kind of broken out of those cages. Um, they don't work anymore. They don't limit power in the ways that we previously have done. And, and that really means that um, power is being used in purer ways, far less rules-based ways. Um, and that, that, that is, I think, a, a question of speed. Um, how, um, as I said, we haven't managed to kind of evolve kind of the squishy human, human regulatory rules-based moral order um, to be as fast as the things it needs to control. Right, and and it's also quite funny that um, you know technology, which is ruled ruled by math, actually is is way less constraining uh, to that. That 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 we've almost leaked power onto the web uh, as a as a virus uh, for good or bad. Uh, and that it's able to to spread within within those confines. So actually, the the slightly the engineered um, world of the web is actually more like the Wild West uh, in in many ways than uh, than the above the above water uh, side of power. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, it is. It's 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 wilder. The the kind of law is the law is quieter. Um, the professional bodies don't exist and even well-meaning people who try and use the power which they suddenly find themselves with um uh often like simply don't have the kind of norms and and developed understandings to do so um and that's the kind of big worry because like organized societies have always tried to limit the ways in which its members can reach into each other's lives i mean that is essentially what 
what having a kind of moral society I think really means both the way that people limit themselves and also the way in which our institutions and 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 kind of institutional uh, architectures limit it for us and and deliver penalties and forms of restitution when um, when those limits are breached and that just simply in time after time area after area of our lives isn't isn't working when um, when power has taken these new forms. Yeah, and so so let's talk a little bit about how these fundamentally the the institutions that we've trusted, quote unquote, with power have evolved slower than power, as in its purest form has evolved, and and it's the the it's the 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 the, the lack of speed, let's say, between formal and informal power uh, that's got wider. And and that's where the worry is. Um, in fact, I'm I'm just I just remembered, you know, in those um, Zuckerberg testimonies in the U.S. That I can't remember. There was one Congress person who asked a question, and he he essentially didn't know. I think he asked Zuckerberg something like, "Well, how do you fund it if no one pays?" And he was like, "Adverts, Mr. Congressman." Yeah, right. Yeah. And the, the guy just didn't know. It was like, "Whoa, okay, this is." You, sh- you should know that. You should know that. Um, so, so there's a difference in culture in these places. I've, I just, I just want to maybe, as a, as a way into this discussion about the speed of decision making, mm-hmm. I thought if I just outline a, a broad hypothesis I've shared before, and it might be a good Kickstarter for us to go into that. Uh, and that's, uh, so, so I, I just like, math metaphorically here, is that, um, that the world being chaotic now basically because of the, the interconnected nature of it and, and mainly the web, uh, means that things, things change exponentially um, at, an ex- at an exponential speed. And yet the, the, the bandwidth that a centralized system such as a government or such as the law, as a, let's just say as a document, um, that centralized system can't cope with the the volume the speed the like sheer sheer data that's going through the world and uh, and it's a single point of failure that there's a central government um and and so to me that that fails uh particularly within the the confines of you having to to um to listen to the law to follow the law so i see how what you're saying there is that in an autocratic also central government it can work fast because the rules don't apply um and so so the the idea on the bright side perhaps we said we wouldn't try to to dip only into the dark side of the world the the bright side is that the internet can also offer us the technology whereby we create more decentralized or distributed forms of democracy uh, which can cope with complexity and with speed and and follow the rule of the law, which which it constantly updates. Um, and you've spoken, I think you've looked a lot at both sides of that coin. I know you've spoken to, you have some friends in common with the Taiwan and with Colin McGill from Polis. Uh, but then you, you've also been to the, the darker side of this than me. So I'm, I'm curious as to where you're netting out uh, with the, the two camps here. Um, I, I'm broadly, I'm broadly optimistic, actually, about about how politics is going to change. Um, you know, people like um, Audrey Tang and V Taiwan and 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 the other kind of digital Democrats that you see kind of emerging around the world. 
um, I think may well be the savior of politics. Um, they're, they're kind of, it's very interesting. They're kind of bringing with them this kind of whole body of ideas that, that I think probably emerged in the kind of open software movement. Um, partly to do, of course, with different ways in which decisions can be made. Um, but then also um, emphases on, on kind of consensus and rational argument and, um, and kind of, you know, con the principle of contribution. Um, and I think this is a really body, interesting body of ideas to be kind of introducing into politics right now. Because um, I think kind of probably one of the most kind of widespread beliefs that people across the polit political spectra um, kind of share at the moment is the idea that um, our current kind of parliamentary democratic kind of uh, makeups um, aren't really working. Partly that's due to do that. Partly that's down to speed, I think. Partly that's down to the way in which kind of um, digital politics allows a kind of much broader span of beliefs and ideologies and arguments to to organise and mobilise and and um, and to find people that agree with it, agree with them. But I think I think very very consistently across so many different kind of mature democracies, we're seeing. Um, this kind of idea that, 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 that people aren't being listened to, that they don't trust their political representatives, um, that, that the kind of basic way in which decisions are being made um, uh, doesn't encompass the beliefs and, and, uh, and uh, kind of values that people have, um, values held by the people who these um, political decision-making is affecting. Um, so, yeah, I think a big shift is coming. Um, I, I kind of, I really expect that um, over the next couple of years, we'll see a lot more digital Democrats kind of arguing for and winning power, um, like Audrey, um, you know, on this idea of changing what government is rather than simply what government does. Um, and I think that when you kind of, when, when that happens um, and people begin to explore the way in which technology can allow new forms of decision, political decision, formal political decision making to happen, um, the lid comes off. Suddenly these um, kind of parliamentary democratic kind of traditions and institutions which we've been bound into for, for, for centuries now um, will, I think, come unstuck. Um, and the possibilities of what then we remake our democracy to be, I think, are almost endless. Um, and I think far greater than the kind of the, the way in which it's normally conceived by people as being this kind of naive form of simply everyone voting on, on everything. You know, I think there's, uh, there's, there's hundreds of unbelievably interesting kind of hybrid examples of people mixing together deliberative democracies with direct democracies, with liquid democracies and so on. Um, pretty optimistic, actually, that, that in the long run, um, uh, we will end up with democracies which are more um, agile and reflective of, of, of what people think, where essentially people who kind of become more powerful citizens so the the this makes me think of the uh, I, I have this idea that democracy's in beta or has been in beta basically, and that we didn't have the technology to to fully launch it. Um, and and the way I kind of come to that hypothesis is that if you look at I forget the name of quite a seminal book, the Samuel Huntington one, um, the Third Wave. That's it. And he talks about how. The, uh, I mean, reading that book, what, what was amazing for me was to realize that democracy is really new. 
uh, actually. It's like, you know, re really, you, you could even argue that it's like 100, 100 to 150 years old in many ways. And then when you look at how, when it reached majority, so that it, as a piece of technology, let's, let's think of it reaching mass adoption. So over 50% of the world adopt it as a technology. I believe that's like incredibly recent. So it's something like the last 20 years. Um, and he describes each of these waves as, as booming and then having a downturn just between the waves, between waves one and two, and then two and three. And there's a moment where it struggles a little bit. Um, so he, he shows that in the way that the number of democracies increases and then just drops slightly. So it's two steps forward, one steps back. And my sense is that we're in, we're in the in-between part before the fourth wave at the moment. My sense is that we are now in the pain point, in the struggle area, and, and that the, the, four, the fourth wave is kind of to come. And, and I hope that it will come in the shape of, of this hybrid nature that digital democracy can bring about. Because I agree, I think too many people, when, because the idea is so new when you share digital democracy as an idea with them, they'll tend to say, oh, well, everyone gets to vote on everything. Uh, and it's not like that. There's many, many nuanced ways, which in many ways are, are retrievals of old decision-making models, very human ones, uh, with, with the help of technology. Um, so that's where I come out, this idea that we, we could be in that pain zone that I think you started describing, and now entering some sort of fourth wave. Um, but I, I admit to mainly being driven by optimism and hope there. Yeah, I mean, what, what, what I really like about that idea is, is, is just the sense that um, democracy itself the actual process is not something which should be locked in stone um but it has to evolve and change you know it's a piece of social technology which has to evolve and change as, as the society which it kind of is created and maintained by evolves and changes as well um i think especially like really old democracies like the uk i mean um i think we're kind of weighed down by the kind of legacy of our kind of um constitutional and democratic decisions um, in ways which Taiwan isn't. Um, and that really kind of, you know, I mean, we had a struggle in order to stop our laws, our bills being written into law on vellum, you know, rather than paper recently, you know, there's the, and if you, if you spend any time in parliament, you'll just like get this kind of powerful sense of the, the weight of history, which kind of can, I think, be kind of as problematic as it is, as it is good. Um, um, which kind of weighs down on the way in which democracy works. Um, you know, and there is, I, I agree, like there's simply no reason why we have to think that the way in which democracy was established in 1649 um, should be the way in which democracy should work today. That there are so many other ways in which we can make it work. Um, exactly what stage we're in, I mean, I, I'm like probably a bit more skeptical than you, John, about being able to kind of characterize kind of the kind of technologies through a series, like a sequential series of predictable phases. Um, I think, I think, um, I think it's probably more chaotic than that. Um, but, but, but definitely the idea that that democracy is is the democracy we have now is kind of part of a kind of um, an evolving lineage of democracies. You know, it's been different in the past. It's it's going to be different in the future. And each generation has to kind of work out how to make it how to update it and make it work for them. I think that's totally right. Well, and I, I guess ma mainly I'm, I'm going back on the idea that it was about hope. I actually think like it's an imperative because if you don't, like you say, if you don't 
evolve democracy so that it has more processing power and decision-making speed, then uh, the fastest decision-maker will kind of win in the end. And at the moment, that's an autocratic regime not bound by law. And, and that's a terrifying prospect. So, so, and at the moment, I don't see another good, um, another good suggestion, basically. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with that. So th this, um, this brings up two, two other um, bits that you've written about that I, w I wanted to bring up. Um, maybe, uh, I'm sure, I'll go to the first one, which was around activism. Um, and I'd love you to tell a little bit, do a bit of storytelling around the community organizers that you met in Silicon Valley with Silicon Valley Rising. Um, and then we can, we can broadly talk to this topic of activism um, overall, because actually it's something when you introduced yourself at the beginning, I think you said that you'd started Chasm uh, about eight years ago, which, uh, if, if I'm correct, is around the Arab Spring moment. So, so I'm, yeah, guessing, I'm guessing, yeah, right. Okay, so these things overlap a, a lot for you. Can you just start going for this into this topic a bit and we can have a bit of a discussion around that? Sure. All right. Well, there are two main kind of, I guess, organizers or activists which appear in the book. Um, one, a Silicon Valley Rising, and the other, a German woman called Marianne Grimmenstein. Um, with, with two probably quite different messages, actually. Silicon Valley Rising, I met in San Jose, um, uh, the kind of foot of, uh, the foot of the Bay Area in California, Silicon Valley. Um, and uh, they were um, a group of people who were kind of representing the kind of forgotten half of the tech industry. Um, not the data scientists or, or engineers, but the, the cafeteria workers, the transport drivers, the security guards, um, who especially amidst this kind of incredible kind of gold rush that has happened in California, you know, totally unprecedented amounts of wealth emptying itself into that actually quite small valley, um, have found their lives, even working for the, the, the kind of the tech giants, to become more and more difficult. There's an unbelievably, um, an unbelievably poignant um, housing crisis. If you go and pick up a, a um, Spanish language newspaper um, in the area of San Jose that we were in, you would find um, not houses being advertised for let, but, but individual rooms or cities within rooms, rooms divided into four with curtains having four families in it. Um, and they were trying to improve the working conditions and pay of this kind of forgotten half of the tech industry actually in a pretty old school way, um, you know, just, um, you know, a shop floor, kind of labor activism, um, unionization. Um, they kind of realized that the kind of tech giant's greatest vulnerability was actually their own workers. And they could be kind of severely embarrassed when their own workers were kind of organized to the extent that they um, uh, could kind of publicly and in a coordinated way say we can't survive on the amount of money that you're paying us we we desperately need to come to a new kind of um uh agreement with you the employer um in order to be able to live in this area which has become so enriched by by your successes um so that was the kind of that for me was kind of a you know especially in the heart of silicon valley and in the heart of the tech giants themselves a kind of reminder for how, um, uh, you know, labour unionisation and, 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 and activism um, in a very, very traditional sense can still have 
significant successes. And, and Silicon Valley Rising has had significant successes. Um, they've kind of um, caused a series of tech giants, one after the other, to improve their employment practices and are still kind of fighting to do so um, by organising their workers. Um, then we've got Marianne Grimmenstein, who, who, who kind of brought a different message. Um, I, first, I first heard about her when I um, got to know a man called Gregor Hackmack, who had just been made um, the head of uh, Germany's um, branch of Change.org. Um, Change.org, of course, is a kind of online kind of petition and activism site. Um, and uh, he was kind of, the kind of story begins with him um, kind of leafing through a German newspaper one day looking for people to help. Just, just join Change.org. Um, he wanted to find good causes that might benefit from, from what they could bring. And there was one kind of small article in a German, in the Tageszeitung, a German newspaper, um, which announced that a woman called Marianne Grimmestein had failed to take the German government to court. Um, it was on a trade bill um, called SETA, um, a big trade bill between the European Union and Canada. And for various reasons, um, Mrs. Grimmestein um, thought that this trade bill was unconstitutional. She thought it didn't give enough provisions for um, actually the same concern as, uh, as Silicon Valley Rising, not enough uh, provisions for um, employment conditions. Um, also, uh, too much power, she thought, to corporates, and she wanted to challenge it. Um, she tried, and, and the uh, German court hadn't heard the case. Gregor um, phoned her and said, would you like to put your petition on change.org? She'd never heard of it. She decided to try. Um, and they checked back about a week later. Gregor thought that maybe a dozen or so of, of Marianne's friends might have joined. And it said 60,000 people had signed up. A week after that, 100,000 people had signed up. It quickly tumbled in front of the attention of Germany's boisterous change.org membership. Um, they then decided to raise money for uh, a, a legal case to kind of to 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 again pursue um, her complaint against the German government. Um, she went out and without any money at this point, um, uh, agreed to a 14,000 euro um, uh, piece of work by one of Germany's foremost constitutional experts, money she didn't have. Gregor panicked, thought the first person he was trying to help on change.org, he was about to bankrupt. Um, quickly set up a microfinancing um, part of the campaign and they couldn't shut it off quickly enough. The <laughs> constitution tumbled in um, and they were desperately asking for people not to send any more money because they um, didn't know <laughs> how they would actually return it to everyone. Um, the last thing they did was uh, to then do a class action lawsuit. Uh, a class action is where you claim that an entire class of people have been harmed by something. Well, Marianne thought the whole class of person that's been harmed by this trade bill was all of Germany. So she invited all of Germany to join her in a class action lawsuit against the German government. And again, they didn't actually think that people would do this. Um, it, it, it's actually fairly onerous to, to join a class action lawsuit. You have to fill out a legal form. Uh, you have to sign it. You have to print it off. You have to physically mail it to Marianne's home. Um, well, the, the postmaster, I should say that Marianne come, doesn't come from Berlin. She has no political uh, background whatsoever. She comes from the central west German town of Ludenscheid, and she's a semi-retired music teacher. Uh, the, the, the postmaster of Ludenscheid 
began to notice that Marianne was receiving rather more letters than she had in the past. Um, <laughs> a, a kind of trickle turned into a tumble, turned into a deluge. We had to give the postmaster his own car to deliver the letters. And Marianne's home um, physically filled up with letters. Um, Marianne's 80-year-old husband had to be drafted in, as did three other volunteers themselves, raised by the campaign. Um, and they spent um, days after days after days um, carefully filing and sorting stacks after stacks of letters, um, all joining Marianne in this class action lawsuit. It became, at the time, the largest class action lawsuit in the history of Germany. And um, they delivered the petition in a pickup truck to the German court. Wow. Um, of course, then, um, finally, uh, Marianne got her day in court. The, uh, the Germany's highest court, the Constitutional Court, agreed to hear the case. And Gregor kind of remembers how, you know, these red, grandly attired, red-robed judges filed into the courtroom. And then there was a kind of frisson. Um, this kind of tall, patrician-looking man kind of angrily strode into the courtroom. Now, we have to remember this courtroom is in Bonn. It's hundreds of miles away from Berlin. And the person that had travelled from Berlin to Bonn to personally defend the German government's case was Sigmar Gabriel, um, pop, uh, kind of popularly known in Germany as Siggy Pop from his time as culture minister. At that point, he was the vice-chancellor of Germany. And he kind of strode up to Marianne face to face and angrily said, you are the woman that is causing me all these troubles. Now, the reason I kind of spend so much time in the book on this story is that it's not about the trade bill. It's not even really about Marianne Grimenstein. Um, but you cannot get a greater imbalance of power than that moment. That mm. moment where a, the vice chancellor of Germany is facing off against a semi-retired music teacher from Ludenscheid. And that day, the Constitutional Court ordered the German government to go back and to add more provisions into the bill to answer Marianne Grimmenstein's concerns. And the underlying point to all of this, the thing that's so exciting and terrifying in equal measure about the story, is that um, what it shows is that political mobilisation is erupting across the political spectrum because everyone now can do it. You don't mm. need to be a political party. You don't need to be any kind of large organisation whatsoever to do the things that previously only political parties and large organisations could do. They previously were needed to do political mobilisation and mass messaging. You needed experts. You needed money. You needed organisation. Well, now you need an online petition site and a phone. Nothing else. Now, of course, most people don't manage to break through like Marianne did. And she, as far as I understand it from Gregor, has now become a somewhat of a celebrity in Germany, which has continued to champion other um, unsung causes. But it shows that kind of anyone could. And what we're living through right now, perhaps this kind of growing pain that we've spoken about earlier, is that in addition to the formal apparatus of democracy actually staying, staying the same, we're seeing um, mobilisation and counter-mobilisation everywhere. Everyone could do this, whether you are a feminist or a meninist, Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter, far left, far right. Your politics doesn't matter. Like, and, and both brilliant and, in my view, kind of terrible causes in equal measure have, have all found kind of visibility and succor and support because they are, they are now exploiting the collapsing of this monopoly. And that's what we're living through right now. Um, 
and there are and it, and it and it's only getting more vibrant it's only getting in a sense worse for the mainstream i'm sure the mainstream feels like it's under attack from everyone every direction at the moment and that's because it is it simply is under attack from everyone because it's lost the monopolies it used to enjoy well and the the this this like polarity i mean there's two things there one is things are more left-leaning than ever and things are more right-leaning than ever. Um, I think we actually saw in the, in the recent European elections that the, the sort of headline was that the centre was losing um, and that things were going more left and more right. And you see that in other ways. This amazing story you tell about Marianne is, is the story of the individual um, and the new succeeding over the, the institutional and the old. And yet in Silicon Valley, Whilst there's, there's some success stories, you also see the biggest hoarding of wealth by the fewest people ever, perhaps. And so, so I, th- I think this is what I've been loving about what you've been writing is, is just how true the opposites both are. It is kind of, kind of terrifying. You, you really can't, can't predict what's next in, in that sense. Yeah, and, and you know, that's really the kind of difficult conclusion to all of this. Um, and, and the difficult conclusion in writing about power is that, you know, as an author, as a writer, like you, your, your instinct is, is to try and boil things down, to simplify, to clarify things for the reader as much as possible. That's your job. Um, but actually, you have to recognise that the trends are going in both directions at the same time. So, so, you know, uh, the, the essay question was, are we being more liberated or more controlled? Uh, that's what my editor uh, at Penguin told me um, when I set out. That, that's the question the book was trying to answer. The answer was, um, there's both more control and more liberation than ever before. Um, because, like, both things are happening. Like, and, and really, like, uh, the reason for that comes back to the idea that, that, that power is broken out of its cage, I think. Because when you, um, when you find power in its purest form, I think then the human beings will use it to do the things that human beings have always tried to use power to do, which is both be really kind and generous and liberatory and also be uh, incredibly oppressive and cruel. Human beings have always treated other human beings in both those two ways. And, and when you kind of like then, when you, when you find power in ways which actually, you know, there are very few rules around, there are very few limitations controlling it, well then, you know, it, it's kind of finding its purest expressive form of, of those kind of, I think, kind of fundamental kind of facets of human nature. And that's why we've got this like really weird kind of bi-directional kind of like, um, like direction of travel at the moment. Um, both amazing and terrible things kind of hitting us faster and faster than ever before. Yeah, and that the, the old cognitive bias we fall into of always thinking that it's one or the other, that it's white or or black, or that it's um, the the big power over the individual. Uh, like you say, it's actually. I think I think the internet has, in some way, accelerated this. We're in the era of both, where both uh, monopolies are more powerful than ever, and Marianne's more more powerful than ever, which is which is utterly fascinating. Uh, it ju- I just want to jump onto the monopoly side of that a little bit more. There was a there was a part of your book. Uh, I've, I've written a fair bit about um, tech monopolies, particularly. There was one bit in your book that I didn't know that, that kind of shook me a bit, 
which is the, um, I mean, the, the basic thing I've been saying, this is inspired a lot by Douglas Rushkoff, who I've, I've had on the podcast and I'm quite influenced by, is that the big tech giants are not disruptive in many sense in that it's, they're doing the old industrial thing of replacing people with robots and the money flows to the top easier to the shareholders. But what you, you triggered a thought in me, which is around the fact that these shareholders traditionally in the U.S., uh, which is where most of these companies are, uh, have voting rights and governance rights. Uh, and I, I think you you show in the book that uh, that's not true in the tech companies, that their governance models are are more centralized than, than ever in, in a slightly terrifying way when you, when you take in, into account the amount of power they have financially, uh, technologically, and, and, and politically. Can, can you go into that, that sort of hidden clause a bit more? Because I'd not heard of it before. Right. Well, yeah, exactly. So the, the tech joints, well, not all of them. Um, I think Facebook and Google are probably the most obvious examples of this. They, they, are, um, they are what um, Izzy Kaminska at the Financial Times has described as techno structures. Um, so these are, these are structures where um, in their, the way in which their governance works, they've separated decision making from financial um, from 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 fin- the financial investment. So in a normal company, of course, basically the more of the company you own, the greater you say how, the greater the say that you have over what the company does. Um, but that's not the case for the tech giants. Now, their argument when they step out was that they weren't normal companies and they weren't going to be tied to um, quarterly earnings calls and you know they 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 need to think in the long term. I mean, I think th- th- the sense that they were changing society their own sense that, that what they were doing was changing society was very genuine. Um, and and they, they wanted to develop a governance structure that reflected a very long-term sense of how society was changing. And what that essentially meant was the founders retained majority decision hold, decision-making rights even when they did not retain majority shareholderships over those companies. They knew that their shareholderships and financially were going to be diluted as they went public or they grew um, and, and, and accepted far more investment, but they didn't want to lose control. Um, so they, they created kind of different kinds of class of shares. They created um, voting shares and non-voting shares and essentially arranged it such that um, uh, however much the, their financial stakes were diluted, they did not lose, they did not lose those um, majority control of the voting shares, which were typically issued very early on in, the, in each uh, tech giant's inception. So, you know, Recently, um, there's, there's a shareholder revolt happening in Facebook. A series of shareholders are kind of calling for Mark Zuckerberg to step down as chairman. Um, will they win? No, because Mark Zuckerberg holds 60% of the, um, of the uh, vote, voting shares in Facebook. Mm. Um, so, yeah, these, these are examples. I mean, we, we, we often like see the tech giant as, as, as being the end point for how power is kind of concentrating um, kind of commercially in the digital age. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm completely convinced that the kind of for various reasons, the logics to do with how um, kind of the, the economy and value is, the economy works and how value is created in the digital age, um, tech giants are inevitably eating entire markets. Um, but that's not where the, so, so we're seeing more and more power kind of concentrating as tech giants eat market after market after market. But that's not where it ends. It actually concentrates in the hands of the tiny number of founders um, at the heart of the tech giants. 
Yeah, it's, um, it's Mark, Mark, Larry, Sergey, Jeff that that it that goes all the way back to in some senses. Absolutely, and and you know, I, the I, I, you stand in I, as I did. You know, I visited Facebook's campus. You stand in the middle of this enormous, sprawling, sprawling kind of kind of primary color kind of campus which they've created. You know, it doesn't have a roof garden. It's got roof forest. It's got glades. Um, I heard that's because Zuckerberg likes to walk and talk in his meetings that they built that. Ah, I mean, yeah, very possibly. I mean, there are there are rockeries. Um, the, the, the the largest indoor workspace in the world. You can't see one side of the building from the other. Um, you know, these are these are astounding concentrations of of power that are kind of you can physically see as well as in their balance sheets. And it all comes down to, in Facebook's case, one person. That I think is the most sparkling um, and obvious kind of concentration of power we see it this first thing we've just been talking about that in other ways in the digital age but but it is also concentrating in 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 pretty astonishing degrees um into the hands of a very small number of individuals and, and yet to to follow through with the the thread that this idea that power is is you know going both ways we have this startling story of concentration and yeah i don't know if you followed this much the kind of platform cooperative movement they call it brings back the old, the oldest thing you know which is farm farmer owned cooperatives originally and now you have you know i think it's green taxis in the us is is like an uber but owned by the taxi drivers um, rather than the central platform you now have the same with airbnb and all sorts of other industries and so um, which, which feels like such an amazing uh, possible model uh, built on a really old idea. You mentioned the same with the, the unions uh, movement in, in San Francisco. Uh, it, it's just amazing how monopolies are bigger than ever, and but also cooperatives could get bigger than ever. Uh, and, and again, we, we just don't know. It's both, not either or. Yeah, well, I mean, I, 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 think, I think there's kind of three possibilities for what's going to happen next when we look at kind of markets and, 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 and commercial life and, and, and uh, digital technology. Um, either um, the tech giants will break capitalism. Um, capitalism is reliant on free markets of um, competing near, near, near peer competitors. Um, and that just simply isn't the way in which platforms and aggregations of data work. They create one winner. Um, John Lanio is a brilliant um, this uh, brilliant writer on 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 kind of why that is the case. Um, I, either that, or the um, they get broken up politically, as as happened last time. We saw the emergence of um, of uh, of huge trusts, the kind of Carnegie and Rockefeller trusts, which um, emerge. You know, the last time that the basic way in which value is created in the economy works changed during the Industrial Revolution. Or we'll see, as you said, John, a a kind of um, kind of angular kind of like an angular assault by a by an equally disruptive technological innovation which um, which goes at the kind of centralized kind of um, architectures which tech giants rely upon um, could be platform cooperatives it could be it could be a disruptive ownership model um, could equally be um, kind of protocol based or decentralized networks you know things like Mastodon are really interesting a kind of um, decentralized form of Twitter, diaspora. There is lots of. I mean, you don't need a centralized company to run a social media platform. You really don't. Um, there's lots of other ways of doing it. Um, but the, you know, the, the, 
all this, it, it's funny because all this wealth and incredible power um, and, and, and billions and the way that billions flow, flow around the world basically come down to the, the fairly unsexy topic of platform engineering. It, it comes down to the hidden pipes underneath um, the technology um, services and platforms that we use every day um, and, and, and the question of whether those pipes point inwards or outwards. So th those mm. are the three possibilities, either different kinds of plumbing or pipes um, a kind of more formal, politically driven um, kind of uh, uh, a kind of challenge to the way it, ways in which these companies work, or um, capitalism itself is going to change drastically over the next ten years. And um, when it, I mean, it, so it's coming down. I think we're talking a lot about centralization versus decentralization, um, and and maybe just to to round up our conversation on that note a bit, we have these. Uh, we also have. The opposite's happening there. There's um, Russia and China thought to be almost creating their own internet. Uh, and yet we have this idea of the D-Web, the, the decentralized web, where, where decentralized internet is itself decentralized. Um, have, have you done much thinking or, or looking into those, those dynamics? Yeah, I have. I think they kind of represent like, um, I think they represent one of a number of possible futures um, around like the relationship between states and the internet. Um, so the first thing we spoke about, information operations, I see that essentially as, 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 as states trying to fight back in a weird way. Um, so, you know, nation states have been the basic way in which we politically organise. They've been the basic way in which um, kind of political power has been, has been kind of... Um, concentrated and stored across the world um, since um, probably the end of the First World War. Um, the internet, kind of for its first kind of um, 30 years, went broadly under the radar of nation states. It was kind of seen as this kind of ulterior space, you know, this, 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 this different thing. Um, you know, the immortal words of John Perry Barlow, you know, um, addressing you weary giants of flesh and steel you have no sovereignty where we gather you're, you're not welcome here probably best describes that view um yeah then uh then as kind of political and economic power began to concentrate more and more like more more visible more obvious forms of power began to be more obviously itself organized um by the internet um states began to kind of I think, in a series of ways, kind of um, react to try and bring the internet into their purview. Um, what China and Russia did is, are the most obvious examples of that, but, but really, you know, everywhere, whether it's like increasing, uh, we're going to see a wave of regulation hit the tech giants, I think, soon, like it's already happening. Um, data sovereignty laws um, and military, all of, all of which are, are, are kind of states responding to that and, and and future number one is that they actually managed to do it they and, and the internet therefore kind of uh, kind of balkanizes in it in a way um it, i don't think universal standards can 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 survive um the kind of the the the, the sovereignization of the internet by nation states where they kind of bring um the internet into a their own purviews and and controls and and series of laws which will look very different depending on where you are in the world. And especially looks very different depending on whether you're 
a kind of liberal democratic Western European country or America and uh, China or Russia. The other is kind of the internet survives the attack. You know, and this is this is this is certainly not a um, uncontested space, and and you know everything from decentralization through to the um, cypherpunks and and privacy rights technologists, they're all trying to build technology which essentially makes this kind of power grab um, more difficult, more expensive, or even impossible to do. Um, and and I don't think and that would mean essentially that the internet continues to undermine the capacity of nation states to control what happens to the people within its border. Cybercrime is the most obvious, um, but there are plenty of other examples as well. Um, and, and that would mean a kind of weakening of the nation state, I think, a kind of like almost like a retreat to mean a kind of shared sovereignty with the internet where um, you've got these kind of online communities, possibly self-governing ones, which which largely exist outside of the purview of, of, uh, of, of national law or um, or kind of sovereign control, or they generate their own forms of sovereignty. Um, I don't know which of those, the, 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 I think one of those two futures is likely to happen. Here's, here's me putting a kind of dichotomy in. Um, I, I think, I think, I think it, it's likely that we'll see one or either of those two futures emerge. But as you, as you said, I, I don't know either. I don't know which one it's going to be. Yeah, I mean, this is a this is a, a fascinating thing to see unfold in our in our lives. I, I feel it's it's really difficult to not feel swings of emotion between feeling incredibly hopeful for all the good stuff out there and in, and and equally sometimes feeling fearful uh, of of what could happen. But I also wonder uh, I wonder if that's ever been any different within the context of of various generations i think i think perhaps we we've just added steroids to that uh in in the last 20 years really <laughs> yeah absolutely i <laughs> i agree I, I think it you know states do change constantly they 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 they're very reactive actually quite flexible things which have proven actually to be very good at kind of weathering kind of profound societal and political change over the years and and kind of finding new ways of kind of protecting the sovereignties and and kind of uh, monopolies and legitimate violence which they which they've retained um so i i i don't think the question is a for, i don't think there's a foregone conclusion here um states are quite slow actors but they're like militaries actually pretty decisive when they get going um and you know let i i you know let, let's not forget that however much However, however much we kind of can see the power of the tech giants and however rich they are, like they are not nation states. Like, they do not have armies. They do not have controls of legal systems. They are companies. And when a state really decides to express its sovereignty over a company, it can do so. And it can actually do so quite easily. Um, I hear quite a lot from kind of policymakers and legislators here in the UK, obviously work for a political think tank. So, so I... Um, so I have quite a lot of interactions with them. Um, I hear quite a lot from them, this idea that there's nothing that we can do. And, that, and that's just simply not true. Um, there's, there's everything that nation states could do if they wanted to. Yeah, there's, there's hope that they do it. <laughs> it just, um, I'm, a, I'm aware of time. Is there, um, is there anywhere, I mean, other than people should go get the book, uh, which to remind them of the title is The Death of Gods, The New Global Power Grab. Uh, which I think is on, on Amazon and plenty of other places. Um, where where would you like to point people to online? 
Oh, I mean, I think it, it kind of, it kind of. I mean, like it, it, it depends what 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 people want um, and 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 uh, what they need. I mean, I think, um, you know, definitely, um, definitely, people should check out V Taiwan. Um, you know, I think I think Audrey and and PDIS are probably the most exciting kind of political uh, innovators in the world, and I, I wish. I wish a thousand times more people in the UK were familiar with their work. Um, I think, uh, John, I think you're doing a brilliant job familiarising them with their work. But but that that's exactly the kind of example which um, which we need to have in a kind of post-Brexit world when we're going to inevitably ask ourselves questions about why democracy isn't working, what we can do to fix it. Um, in addition to that, I think that um, people should check out um, DEFCON the DEFCON website. Def, we haven't really spoken about hackers or, or crime, but um, DEFCON is the largest convention of hackers in the world. And what hackers can now do, or at least the most capable of their number, is, is totally astonishing. When I went there, it's held once a year, every year in Las Vegas. I saw um, voting machines get hacked. I saw people proving they could cause wind turbines to burst into flames, um, that they could um, reset their minibar bill using their remote control. And that's another area, I think, where people uh, um, are, are kind of uh, largely in the dark about um, a very powerful group of people that really can shape their lives in ways which are astonishing. So, so um, uh, digital democracy and DEFCON, those are my two suggestions. Um, Carl, where, can you, um, where would you like to send people to to find out more about your work? Well, um, for my sins, I run uh, a website, carlmiller.co, where I try and kind of keep together all the different writing I do. Um, other than that, I think um, Kazan's work, um, kind of more broadly than just my own, um, I wish, you know, like three million people read that a day. Uh, that's just on the demos.co.uk website. And that's, that's kind of a lot of the um, kind of research that the, the Kazan team does, including a report which came out last week, Warring Songs, which is on information warfare. Amazing. I'll go deeper into that. And then any, any sort of last words or comments you want to leave listeners with? Um, we know very little about what shapes our lives. Um, and I think that power is often lurking in the shadows. Um, and it's kind of up to all of us, I think, now to try and bring it into the light in ways which we can begin to control. Um, and that, 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 that rather than simply the excitement for the onset of tech itself, I think is going to be the kind of great challenge for our generation to do. Yeah, go beyond the tech, look in the shadows. All right, thanks so much for, for today, Carl. This has been, uh, after, after reading and really enjoying your book, it's been uh, really wonderful for me to get to dig deeper into, into all of these different areas. So, so thanks for, for the work you're doing and, and sharing it so, so broadly. Amazing, thanks very much. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Carl Miller. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please go and uh, subscribe to it on your podcast app. Give it a rating on the iTunes store. That helps other people to find it. Um, and maybe the best thing you can do actually is to sign up to my newsletter at johnbarnes.me forward slash newsletter. You can also support the podcast on a monthly pay what you want basis on patreon.com forward slash johnbarnes. Until next time, have an awesome week. Bye.